Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Senior Lecturer in Biomechanics at the University of Chichester, Jason Lake. Thanks for tuning in to episode 115 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we have expert in counter-movement jump and all things jumping, Jason Lake. I'm sure he will hate me saying that. Um, So Jason's a senior lecturer in biomechanics at the University of Chichester. uh, And I'd definitely encourage you to check his research gate page out uh, and see all the, uh, the great work he's been doing over there. So as, um, as his kind of job title alludes, that's what we're, we're diving into and, and all things counter-movement jump. So we're going to some of the recent tech that's come out. Um, the Pasco bin one, which has kind of gained a lot of, um, a lot of media because of its price. So we kind of dive into that and, and why it may be or may not be uh, worthwhile jumping on board with, no pun intended. Um, just, just before we get into the chat with Jason, I have part three coming up with Jada Mayo talking about nutrition. So in this little segment, so it's only three or four minutes, uh, Jay just goes into his Excel wizardry and how he manipulates a few things on Excel um, to optimize his athlete's uh, nutrition. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, and massive thanks to the guys at Coach Me Plus for getting Jay on and, and getting Jay on to this little segment. Uh, and also big thanks to Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, for again sponsoring the episode today. So thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the part with Jay and the up and coming episode with Jason. Enjoy. Hey guys. Uh, so the last two times I was on, I talked about how we qualified and quantified uh, the servings of food at breakfast. Then we talked about the if statements and the simple math that we were using to determine plus or minus for the day. Now we're going to talk about our weekly reports that we gave to the coaches. So after we went through and we determined what they had each day for the week, we then looked at another if statement. So we basically took the entire week and threw them all together. The first was a fuel question. So we looked at whether or not We gave them as many or more calories than we were asking them to expend at practice. And this if statement was simply equals, parenthesis, parenthesis, sum, and then all the cells involved in total calories input, close parenthesis, minus, open parenthesis, sum, all of the cells that were involved in the the calories uh, burned. Closed, closed, closed parentheses, so three of them to get us back to where we are, are greater than zero, comma, quotes, capital letters plus, quotes, uh, comma, excuse me, quotes, capital letters minus, quotes, close the parentheses. So what this is saying, this if statement is, if the sum of the calories given to the student-athlete minus the sum of the calories expended by the student-athlete were greater than zero, then it would say plus in that square, which was just a bunch of cells that were uh, merge-centered. If it was less than zero, then it would say minus. Then we looked at weight, doing the same thing. If the average of the week before minus, or excuse me, if the average of this week minus the average of the week before is greater than zero, it would be, so greater than zero, comma, quotation, capital letters for plus, quotation, comma, quotation, capital letters, minus, quotation. So to put words instead of numbers in, put it in quotes, and then you can put that in there. Um, So what this says is if their weight went up, um, or at least didn't go down, then it says plus. If it went down, then it says minus. Then the next one, we're looking at an if and statement, okay? So equals if, parenthesis, capital letters and, okay? Um, parenthesis, the cell grouping for um, calories, 
or excuse me, for fuel equals plus, comma, and the body weight one is minus, then it would be player error. So what this is telling us is we gave them enough calories for them not to lose weight. The kids aren't eating enough for dinner or lunch or both. Then an and, an if, parenthesis, and parenthesis, it was plus plus, then it was coach win, meaning we're giving them enough calories, we're giving, and everything's taking care of itself. If, parenthesis, and, parenthesis, minus, minus, okay, then it's a coach error. Um, quick note, when you type in the words, you have to use quotes and type it with the exact way that it's written. So if it's all caps, it's got to be all caps. So that means their body weight went down and they didn't get enough calories. That's my fault. I got to fix that. Then finally, if we didn't give them enough calories, so it's if and minus plus, then it would be a player win, meaning they're taking care of things and I got to pick my game up to help them. So hopefully, guys, this helps you out. Um, maybe we throw the, the drop box sheet without the names down here for you guys so you can actually see the formulas. Uh, Rob, Kev, thanks again for all you guys are doing. Let's get back to the show. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure of speaking to Senior Lecturer in Biomechanics at the University of Chichester, Jason Lake. So welcome to the podcast, Jason. How you doing? I'm good, mate. Thanks for uh, thanks for giving up your time on a on a Tuesday evening to have a little chat. Well, it's all have a little going out in the rain. <laughs> do you want to um, do you just want to give us a little bit of a background on you, if just in case anyone uh, shockingly doesn't know who you are? No way. Do you mean there's people out there who don't know who I am? <laughs> good God, my princess uh, crown has just fallen off. Sorry, um, mate, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll be honest with you. I'm I'm, I'm Relatively new to all of this, if I'm honest with you, because um, I spent the first part of what was essentially a misspent youth running around shooting stuff in the army. Um, so I didn't get into this academia nonsense until about uh, ooh, 2001. So I did my—I basically left the army. Had a few years bumming around trying to figure out what to do. Started a degree when I was about 30, I think it was. Did an undergraduate degree in sports science at Chichester. Well, basically, from 2001 onwards, I started at Chitzer and I haven't been able to get rid of me. I did my master's in sport exercise biomechanics. I uh, was fortunate enough to um, carry on doing some teaching there. Um, and then a, a PhD position came up, which was cool. I finished my PhD in 2010, uh, six years ago. And then from 2009, I've been uh, a full-time uh, lecturer in sports and exercise biomechanics um, teaching the undergrad and master's courses or contributing to some of the master's courses, but also program coordinating our MSc in strength and conditioning, which is pretty cool too. So uh, a bit of a whistle-stop tour around a wonderful life of me. So rumour has it you are the man when it comes to counter-movement jump and jumping in general. Is this I'm, I'm, Well, I, I think probably the better description would be I'm the, the saddo who likes looking at squiggly lines. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you. So how, did you how did you get into that line then? I'll be honest. Well, this, oh, God, this is not at all flattering. Um, I did my master's over two years. So I did it part-time because, you know, young kids and, that, and mortgage and all that, I had to, had to do all the work business. So literally digging ditches in the week and uh, doing my master's in the, on, a, on a sort of Friday in the weekend. And so halfway through, I got the opportunity to do a research project. And it was actually on a, a – I think it was a podium presentation we had at the uh, – accepted for the International Society of Biomechanics and Sport in 2006, I think it was. So it was my first sort of um, my first sort of uh, dip into the um, the wonderful world of, of conferences. I mean, as it turns out, I actually lost my bloody passport and birth certificate. Uh, so I couldn't actually go to one of my supervisors that I presented. In fact, well, I say I lost it. I think I actually threw it away by accident. But anyway, <laughs> bottom line was I missed out on a weekend in uh, um, Salzburg in Austria, which is a bugger because I wanted to go and see the Sound of Music tour. Um, anyway, <laughs> I was going to go and uh, we were supposed to present that, but uh, in, in, doing, in, in collecting that data, so basically what we did was, was collect the ground reaction forces of uh, counter-movement jump. So we collected the uh, – sorry, no, um, not the counter-movement jump, the, the jerk – and so we collected the, the dip and drive phase from one force platform, and then we collected the um, catch phase of the front foot um, 
from a separate force platform because we wanted to see what the impact forces were from the front foot. So it was a pretty cool idea. The study itself was, was pretty solid, but uh, the participants were, were were less than sort of you know they they were a decent bunch, but they they certainly weren't they certainly weren't going to be uh, troubling anybody for gold medals in the future. Although at the rate of people getting bloody banned for various indiscretions, on maybe they will. I don't know. Um, saying that, we'll probably both of us will be able to get a medal at some point, Rob, if they carry on like this. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> but anyway, the, the long and the short of it was, I was uh, the, the jerk or the dip and dry phase of the jerk is essentially a loaded counter movement jump. Um, and I'll be honest with you, at this point, the reason this is unflattering is because at this point I was really struggling to figure out the transition phase between the dip and the drive. And I, I literally spent, and oh God, this is so sad. I spent months trying to get my, my head around the fact that um, the lowest part of the force tying curve during the counter movement didn't necessarily represent the lowest point or the lowest position of the jerk, if that makes sense, or the, or the counter movement part of the jerk phase. And so I basically spent a couple of, min- a couple of months buggering about without trying to get my head around it. Um, and I think because I invested that amount of time, I got a little bit obsessive about it and as a consequence probably got a little bit pedantic about it so that when – when we started teaching, you know, when when we would teach these sort of things, I'd probably go into a bit more detail than perhaps we would have done before, because I wanted to make sure that the the, the undergraduate and the master's students that I taught weren't making the, the same mistakes that I was making, because you know I'd made some stunning mistakes during that couple of months, um, and so it was literally spending a couple of months reading papers by you know the the Comey and the 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 Hakkinen and the Bosco papers from the sort of late 70s, early 80s, and more recently the sort of the Karamori and the half papers where they looked at um, counter-movement jumps or hang power cleans on, you know, from force platforms and stuff like that. So actually applying the, actually getting my head around the, the techniques that they'd used to make sense of ground reaction force data um, and, you know, actually practically applying that and, and being able to use them to sort of get some information about the jerk. Um, and so that was essentially – the birth of a, a very weird obsession with squiggly lines. <laughs> and that was back in, whenever, what was that, 2005. So I've essentially been, <laughs> shit, <laughs> I have been that sad for about 11 years now. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? <laughs> so what did I used to do? I used to run around shooting stuff. What do you do now? Well, for the last 11 years, I've looked at squiggly lines. <laughs> Persistence, <laughs> though. Yeah. It's people like p- people with persistence. It's good. Yeah. You're like a comic book guy in The Simpsons. Life well spent. <laughs> so, did you just want? I mean, one of the one of the things that I fired over to you uh, prior was was just a, a question around issues with um, counter movement jump research. Yeah. Do you just want to give us a little bit of um, kind of another whistle stop tour around your views on uh, CMG research? Absolutely. Um, so the whole thing with using counter movement, well, just using vertical jumps in general can depend on who you talk to be quite a contentious issue because for for me as a lecturer you know counter movement jumps or just jumping in general vertical jumping in general give us a pretty good nice simple model that helps us explore various sort of biomechanical characteristics of human performance and obviously we these are the very same sort of biomechanical characteristics we try and tease out for performance assessments the thing with that is of course that if you want to get decent, consistent data, you have to control the movement. So the first sort of constraint on this sort of, or the application of this sort of research or this sort of study of this area, is that we have to control the movement. And of course, the more we control the movement, the further it shifts away from real life application, because it's very rare they're actually performing a controlled movement in the sporting arena. So that's point one. The second one, this is probably most important for practitioners, is how do you how do you record or how do you quantify that performance? How do you obtain the performance data that you need to help you tease out where your athlete is or where the individuals you're working with is, where they need to get to, and then from that develop that program to help them get from A to B. Um, I'll be honest with you, most and as I'm sure you know, most of the work I've been doing, or most of my sort of area of expertise, if I dare bloody call it that, is um, working with force platforms. Uh, now. The reason I'd rather leave it around the force floor platform area at the moment is, is twofold. First one is because it's probably the simplest yet most robust method of studying vertical jump performance. And I know that might sound a bit weird because, well, what do you mean simple? It involves force plates for a start. But, you know, once you know, once you understand the basics, it's a pretty simple process, um, you know, based around a couple of, of um, physics laws that you just can't argue with. So that, that that's the first bit. 
The second bit is that to shift away from force platforms, we then really have to get ourselves into the whole all singing, all dancing biomechanics laboratory with a three dimensional motion capture. Um, and and then, as I think as I mentioned to you earlier, you know the, the ten camera Vicon system we got at Chester costs us just on you know, just shy of a hundred thousand pounds. We've got a force platform that's seventy grand on its own. It's so you know that's probably beyond the grasp or beyond the reach of most um, applied practitioners. Now, obviously, we we can go down the um, slightly different routes with force platforms. We know there's a, there's a number of different sort of options available to us. Some of us might be lucky enough to have some in-ground force platforms like the Kistlers, the AMCIs or the Vertex. But, of course, all the way down the other end of that scale is, is probably the, the, the Pasco force plates. Uh, you know, we can buy a pair of those for 600 quid. And then you've got all sorts of various sort of middle ground options, whether they're the portable AMTIs, the portable Kistlers, or the, the various other systems that are coming through, like the Force Decks and the Z-Flows. Hopefully, I haven't missed any out. Um, so, Not commissioner, you, so it's all right, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got to, yeah. <laughs> so you've got a whole range there. You know, you've got your Pascos at 600 quid up to the all singing, all dancing big Kistler. Um, well, you know, we've got one of these in our lab um, that I think was 70 grand. You know, and, and you've got everything in the, in between. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I like all of the systems. I think all of them have got their, their pluses and their minuses. Um, but the bottom line, I think, is, is once you've got that system, you know, unless you're, unless you're, Unless you're minted, you're probably going to be stuck with that for a while. So you probably need to learn how to make the most of it. And I think if we're talking about jumping, we really need to start thinking about, okay, so what is it we're actually interested in? So the first thing we really need to think about is certainly with counter-movement jump, because it's been a sort of focus of my attention for a little while now. Um, we need to start, start thinking about what is it we, we you know, what is the data we all want to actually get from our, from our athletes? And so the first thing we need to think about is getting our athletes on that, on that force plate, standing still, and implementing a protocol that will enable us to get re, um, reliable, robust data. So, just to re, just before I go into any of the sort of details on the, the, the review I've been working on for what seems like bloody twenty years, but I think it's only been about two years. But anyway, it's been dry. It's been, I love it. I'll tell you, what, I put more effort into this than I did my whole PhD. However, it's been a massive pain in the backside as well, just because it's you know been one rabbit warren down down the next, you know. Um, as I'm sure you can imagine, you chuck counter moving jump, uh, jump and force platform data or force data into Google Scholar or PubMed or whatever, and you get thousands and thousands of papers. Uh, once you remove all the duplicates and that, we, you know, we end up with just over 1,200 papers. The really, really peculiar thing is, and this might surprise a lot of people, is once you whittle down uh, and get rid of all the papers that didn't actually use a force platform or didn't actually do anything with that force platform data or didn't describe what they did with that force platform data, you end up with just over 100 papers. So there's only actually 131, I think it is, papers out there at the moment. Uh, obviously, they, you know, they we're, we're adding them daily almost to, to, to the body of knowledge. But up until March, I think it was, there was only 131 articles that explained how they used force platform data to quantify counter movement jump performance. What, what, what's, what, why are we so obsessed with it? Why is there so many? Um, well, I mean, in some ways, I think that 131 is a really small number because yeah, okay, because yeah. so there's there's a couple of different ways to look at it. So the, the one thing is that um, that's actually a relatively small number. If you if you think you know that's only like 10 percent of the of the papers that are out there, and these are these are only sort of the peer reviewed journal articles. I didn't even go down the whole um, abstract route and stuff like that or thesis route. Um, how is it that so many people have used force platforms to study vertical jump performance or counter movement vertical jump performance, but only 131 of them have done what I would consider a decent job of it? And I won't go into the, the ins and outs of what I consider a decent job, but because hopefully that will come out soon. Um, and again, it is reasonably subjective up to a point. So, you know, we'll, we'll leave that for now. But that's like, really? So, of all the interest that there is in counter movement jump analysis using force platforms, there's only 101, 131 papers that have actually study this in any detail and provided what we might you know what we'd hope would be um sufficient information to help replicate that study of course on the flip side you might argue well bloody hell you know there's 12 over 1200 papers or over 1200 studies that have uh, referred to it at least so why are we all fascinated by it well mainly for me it's because if you follow a, a decent protocol the force platform enables you to get the most accurate robust data associated with the movement of the center of mass during a vertical jump. Does that make sense? 
cool. So as long as our athletes stand still for a certain amount of time so we can quantify their weights or however they are, we can then basically tease out tons of information. And in fact, I would say as long as your understanding of Newton's laws of motion are pretty solid and you're halfway handy with a spreadsheet or lab view or MATLAB, and this might sound a bit corny, but your imagination is the only sort of limitation to the sort of imitation you can get out of that. And in fact, I'll tell you what, you look at some of those studies and some people have really have stretched their imagination, but that's probably another conversation. Um, so you can get so much good stuff, but I think as scientists, we always tend to complicate stuff. Um, it's only natural, I guess, isn't it? Because at some point, any research you do is going to turn into a bit of a pissing competition, isn't it? With somebody else for whatever reason, and hopefully, ultimately, it'll end up being you know being, being for the good because it'll help us you know get a better understanding of a particular area. And it'll help us develop as researchers and practitioners, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But ultimately, in some way, you're going to end up arguing with somebody on Twitter about something. But <laughs> and more often than not, it's just you know more often than not, it comes down to some sort of procedural. Uh, sort of issue or some sort of uh, dependent variable that someone's interested uh, or a different viewpoint that two you know two or more practitioners or researchers might have about the application of a particular variable and I'll, I'll just give you a bit of an indication and ho hopefully this won't go off on too much of a tangent but if we look at the 101 131 papers that have um, collected and actually utilized um, force platform data from counter-moving jump performance only 30 papers have actually explained how, oh, sorry, only 30 papers have identified the start of the movement. Of, no. of, so, wow, really? <laughs> Shit. So how do you calculate all this stuff like RSI, for example? RSI is based on contact time. So obviously I know you can use contact mats and stuff like that. I mean, I won't go into the ins and outs of why I think contact mats can be, you know, can be quite limited, but. If you're going to use a force platform, well, bloody hell, you better explain to the reader how you've identified that. It's very, very rare that people do. You know, and even even of those that do, there, there's one, two, three, four, five, five or six different methods currently be used, being used. So of those thirty, <laughs> of those thirty studies, you got pretty much what five or six different methods per, uh, sorry, uh, a different method per five or six studies. So, you know, how on earth can we get a decent sort of foundation for practitioners to build on and actually implement if we can't even make up our own minds? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's natural because it's, it's, you know, like any area, it's progressive and it's got to develop. But but at the same time, we don't seem to be moving towards um, uh, a time where we're actually agreeing on stuff, which is a bit of a shame. So hopefully, if we do ever get this review out, it will help um, – at the very least, it will, will try and consolidate what's out there and, and make some recommendations based on our knowledge and understanding of this area uh, and, and on what we'd consider best practice. Again, by saying that we're going to do that, of course, that's our opinion as well. So, of course, that can, that can divide. <laughs> so I, I appreciate that in some respects it's just throwing another can of petrol on the bloody fire, isn't it? But, um, you know, we're going to try our best to – well, we are going to be as objective as we possibly can, but obviously we're trying our best to, to really look at it from a from – three individuals from the opinion of three individuals that are really interested in this area have a pretty good understanding of it and really just want to push it forward so so that we can implement robust methods um so that, you know enable comparison amongst studies um just to just to push it a bit further you know we've only got 50 56 of those studies have identified phases or a phase or phases within that counter moving jump it's not bloody hell <sighs> 30 of those have, have identified a down phase. 49 of those have identified an up phase. And again, there's like four or five different methods used. It's absolutely crazy. So no wonder we, you know, no wonder everyone's heads are spinning. You know, if you break that first step and you get yourself a force platform and you, and you, you know, you design your protocol and you get your athletes jumping up and down on it, no wonder people are moaning that it's so bloody complicated because, well, it is. Because there's so much conflicting information out there. And I won't even start ranting about takeoff. That's just even that's terrifying. Um, you know, some of the methods are ludicrous, and of course, it's easy for me to say that to, to look at the you know to go back on this re research retrospectively and look at it and say, why the bloody hell did you do it like that? But of course, I do that with my own bloody research. So you know, it's not really that big a deal. It's it should be more. You know, I'm trying to be more positive about it, and and, and from the perspective as you know, we, we take the information we think is relevant, and, and like everything else in life, we we try and make the best out of it. 
But if nothing else, that, that should help sort of um, explain why so many people tend to get incredibly confused about this whole area. And let's face it, this is like one test in what most practitioners will probably include as, as, as a battery of tests. So, you know, we, we haven't got our head around what the best way is to, to, to study this one test out of what? Anything from five to ten tests, depending on the sport, the athlete, and the, the equipment you've got available to you. So, so until your fantastic review comes out, what <laughs> your review comes out, um, what what would your advice be to practitioners to get their head around this this area? Um, I'll be honest with you. There there are a couple of really good papers out there at the moment, and for the bloody life of me, I can't remember the author's names. Oh, I really should do as well, but I've read so many. Excuse me. Um, there's there's some that have been coming out quite recently, but I would say that. We need to sort of we do we definitely need to to drag this whole area back to basics a little bit. So there's lots of you know let's talk about you know we we use there's always talk about terms like rate of force development or peak rate of force development or power or peak power or whatever. We've we've and we've got far too carried away. I think if we're actually interested in how efficient or how effective an athlete is in propelling or accelerating his centre of mass against gravity, then we probably want to be looking at the phase where they're actively pushing against the ground. Okay. Now, again, in the literature, that can be called the propulsion phase, the concentric phase, the push-off, the propulsive. You know, that's just the name for There's all sorts of different ones. But if you've got a reasonable understanding of, of Newton's laws and you can apply them to your ground reaction force data in a spreadsheet, and I think I may have said this before, but I'm more than happy to try and help anybody try and figure out how to do that. They sent me a set, send me a set of their data. I'll try and set something out in the spreadsheet so they've got a rough idea what's going on. You can then identify this propulsive phase or excuse me, whatever you want to call it, from the point where they're in the lowest displacement at the bottom of their squat to the point where they leave the ground. It does get a little bit more complicated then because then you've got to figure out, well, how do you integrate your force data to get your velocity and then your um, displacement? And, of course, how do you identify the point of takeoff? Um, and I'm more than happy to bombard you with all the facts now, Rob, but I think that might be something better to, to leave to A, the menu, and B, to individual sort of conversation because there's so many different ways of, of, of analysing it. Personally, I, I think we need to, you know, when we're looking at takeoff or the point of takeoff in our four state, we need to consider um, a threshold of around five standard deviations of the average noise during that, during that uh, flight phase. Um, which is, sounds probably far more complicated than that actually is. And all we're basically doing is we take we take an average of the middle chunk of the flight time phase or the flight phase, calculate the standard deviation, multiply it by five, and we're basically looking for the first value that corresponds to that. So the first force value that's less than that represents takeoff. And to be honest with you, if it's, if it's a halfway decent force plate set, set up and you follow the instructions and you've zeroed it in that, it's probably going to be no more than 10 newtons. In fact, 10 would probably be quite a high value, to be honest with you. So, again, if you want a, an idiot's guide or an idiot's sort of approach to starting this sort of thing, um, a takeoff uh, threshold of 10 newtons is probably going to be relatively safe. I would say that if you want to go down the research route, we probably want to be a little bit more um, pedantic about it. But 10 newtons is a pretty good starting point for a takeoff. And then once we've got, once we identify the propulsion phase, we, we've, got, oh, we've got so much stuff you can look at. Blimey, how exciting. You know, this is where the geek comes out, isn't it? The geek is born of a squiggly line on an Excel spreadsheet. We look at that. We're going to start dribbling a little bit. You know, as long as we can hold the nose, nose, nosebleed back because it's getting a bit complicated, we're going to start dribbling. It's all going to get a bit exciting. And we can look at it and think, well, okay, so what is actually pertinent? And, and I think to, to answer that question, and I know I'm going on a little bit, but we've got to consider the, the mechanics, the actual biomechanical theory here. And the one thing that accelerates or to use, the, the, I guess, the, the more appropriate term, changes the centre of mass velocity is the application of an impulse, where impulse is the product of net force, so the force that's um, been applied to the system, or been applied to the body, and the time you apply it for. Okay, so really, we should only we should basically subtract the body weight from force because all we're interested in is the force that exceeds body weight. Okay, so it's the force additional to body weight that's been applied to that subject or to that jumper, and the time that they apply it for. That gives us their impulse in Newton uh, in uh, Newton seconds. If we have, if we sum our impulse data up over the propulsion phase and then divide it by the body mass of the athlete, we're going to get the takeoff velocity anyway, 
because impulse is proportional to the change of momentum. Momentum's um, the product of mass and velocity. Mass doesn't change. So basically, we've got the, the um, velocity of that center of mass or that particular point that we're interested in at the end of that phase. So if we, if we can identify, or sorry, if we can calculate the impulse over that phase, we can then divide that by the, the athlete's center of mass, uh, sorry, the athlete's um, mass itself, and that give us their takeoff velocity, and then we can calculate things like their uh, their flights, uh, sorry, their jump height. So I'm getting so excited now, I can't even. Um, my mind's <laughs> You're dribbling now. No, oh, I am. Yeah. Bop that dribble up. Oh, sorry. Give us a moment. Let's get a towel. Um, okay. <laughs> this is going to pause so, one. It's getting obscene, isn't it? Go on. Sorry. You, no, no, no. I don't think you should stop. You should break this conversation up. Otherwise, I'm just going to go off on a tangent. Just going to take a quick break in the episode with Jason. So just want to make you aware, if you're not already, um, the Pacey Performance Podcast has moved homes. So now you can find it at strengthofscience.com. And on there, there's a few other resources that I'm quite excited, well, very excited about in delivering to, uh, to, the, to the viewers and the listeners. And that's the audio abstract. So the audio abstract, uh, the idea came from my frustration of, of reading research and for a simple brain like mine, uh, not understanding any of it. So what I thought was would be a good idea is to get authors uh, of articles on and just get them to chat through their research in layman's terms in a kind of short, digestible manner. So the first couple on there, uh, there's a couple of 25-minute episodes uh, and more recent ones are going to be 15 minutes max. And they are just authors talking about their research. We've got Matt Bourne talking about hamstrings. We have Shane Malone talking about uh, acute chronic in, um, in Gaelic football. We have Heidi Thornton talking about machine learning. And currently we have Jamie Douglas talking about eccentric training. So if you are wanting to check that out, uh, I hope it'll be a good resource for people out there. You can go to strengthofscience.com and go to the audio abstracts tab and they're all on there. So please feel, feel free to subscribe on the YouTube channel. Uh, that's where all the audio abstracts will be posted. So I hope you enjoyed part one with Jason and we will get to back to part two. So you mentioned uh, contact mats, you mentioned Pasco. I just want to touch on um, on the data collection tools and and the, obviously the Pasco being been one that's kind of come onto the scene probably, I don't know, last 12 months that, that people are mm. lapping up for 600 quid. Absolutely. And I just want, I just want your take on first the quality of, of them kind of products. And obviously the, the, the clear thing is why you would go for one of them over Absolutely. spending 40 grand, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, but even if you did have that kind of money, what is the benefits of going with something like a Pasco? Yeah, of course. I mean, well, I think first things first, I, I, I think what I will say is anybody, if anybody wants to ask me about in any more detail about the stuff I was just talking about, I think the best thing would probably just get hold of me via Twitter or email me because yeah. let, let me bore you to death one-on-one rather than everyone who's trying to listen. <laughs> um, after that, though, coming back to your, 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 that question, um, if you've got 40 grand, go away and get yourself a Kistler in-ground force plate. But while you're doing that, bear in mind you've also got to dig a bloody great big hole in your lab floor or wherever it is it's going, concrete it in, um, bolt it to the, the frame that you're going to concrete into the ground, buy the connector, the, the cables that are about 1,200 quid, connect that to your amplifier, and then pop your amplifier into the laptop of the software you've just bought, making sure that obviously your, your laptop's up to spec. You know, it's a bloody expensive hobby. Um, and so unless, you're, unless you've got that sort of cash, you're probably going to dip out. Also, most of the standard Kister plates are um, 60 by 40 centimetres, so they're not huge. If you want to go up the, the next sort of stage, the, the bigger Kistler plates are about 70 grand. That's a lot of money. And so obviously, when we, when we start looking for um, viable alternatives, for years, of course, it's been the contact mat. But, and of course, if you know what you're doing, you can buy the actual mat component of a contact mat. It's about 40 pounds. You know, you can buy a green plastic mat that you get from America for about 40, but it's probably a few more pounds now, but it's not much. But what you need, what the bit that costs of money is the timer because of the um, the sensitivity you want from it or the resolution you want from that timer. You know, you want at least three, maybe four decimal places. And so you're probably going to be paying a good couple hundred quid for that. But if you know someone who can pop one of them together for you, fabulous. You've got a, a reasonable sort of system that will give you um, some half-decent data for, you know, two, three hundred pounds. So that's probably, you know, the, the first option I would say. The, the big, and I know there's going to be loads of people that are going to disagree with me with this, but 
Um, if you do disagree with me, don't argue with me on Twitter. Go have a go at Pete Mundy. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, and again, this is going to come down to sort of, you know, this is my opinion and it's stuff that I've noticed in the lab over the last 10, 11 years. But the landing position and takeoff position of vertical jumping is never the same. And if you, you know, I will, I will stand there and, and say you're wrong until I'm blue in the face if you try and suggest otherwise because you've only got to watch it back in, you know, you've only got to watch takeoff and, and landing in slow motion footage, even in really good, comp, you know, good, competent, experienced jumpers to see that they're just not the same. They cannot be the same. Body orientation uh, in general, let alone inter individual uh, sort of limbs, or the orientation of those uh, particular limbs, just is not the same. So as a consequence, the whole flight time thing is based on the assumption, well, it's not the assumption, it's the reality that the acceleration of gravity is constant. And so the time that we take to, to reach our maximum height should be the same as the time it takes us to come back down again. But if our landing position and takeoff positions are even slightly different, that's going to obviously influence that. Uh, especially if you get a lunatic like me on a jump mat. I mean, you know. <laughs> How I land in my head half the time, I, I just don't know. But anyway, um, so that can be an issue. But of course, if you've only got two or three hundred quid in your pocket, then that's probably going to be the way to go. But that, that for me, is the, is the big issue with using flight time. And I know, of course, now you've got the apps that you can use on uh, on your iPhones and iPads and whatever, which are fabulous as well. But again, they do suffer from those same, same limitations. How big those limitations are will probably depend on who you talk to. I would say if you've got the option of using a force plate, use it. If, of course, you haven't, then, well, you can't. So, you know, you're probably going to go with the iPad app, yeah, or the iPhone app or whatever. Yeah, so that's fair enough. Um, the Pasco plates are brilliant. I mean, I think, if I cast my mind back, I think it was Kimmy Sato from East Texas State University, no, East Tennessee State University, first, as far as I can remember, first using for squatting or any sort of ground-based movement. I think he published his paper on weight distribution in 2012, I want to say. And I think I might be right in saying that he might have had a hand in developing them uh, for that sort of application. Now, as far as quality goes, um, if you're comparing them to laboratory-level Kistlers, they're probably the sort of products you'd find in a bargain bin. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not deliberately trying to be disparaging, but if you compare the quality, that's you know, different bloody world. Yeah. For a start, they're plastic. Uh, as a consequence. <laughs> Their, low, their strain gauge is obviously completely different and nowhere near the same standard as the, the piezoelectric uh, strain gauge you'll get in a Kistler force plate. But at the same time, they're robust. So I know some people are concerned about people landing on them awkwardly and breaking them. We've had a guy called Lloyd Reynolds who um, competed in World's Strongest Man back in 2013, I think. He's a big old boy. Uh, and we've had him doing some, we've had him doing multiple vertical jumps on there with additional barbell weight as well. Uh, and they've coped admirably. Um, so they're I, quite I, they're quite small, so you probably need two. There is that. Oh yeah, you definitely. Sorry, yes, you definitely need two. Yeah, you definitely need two. And even then, I was talking to um, somebody the other week about it, and they got some of their athletes on it, and some of their athletes got bloody um, flipper feet. Um, and one of the issues they found is that poor old HMS left and right couldn't quite fit on each of the force platforms. Uh, and what I mean by that is the force plates were only thirty-five centimeters square. I think the two-dimensional one might be you might get an extra couple of centimeters out of it, but. I'll be honest with you, I don't think the two-dimensional ones are worth uh, worth the extra couple hundred quid. Yeah. Um, because they're not. No, they're definitely not. No, no. Yeah. Okay. Um, hopefully it hasn't upset too many people. But, the, but yeah, the, 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 the 1D vertical-only plates are pretty solid as long as you've got people that, A, haven't got dirty, great, big flipper feet, um, B, um, are more ninja-like than, um, than Jason-like, and um, obviously, you know, that fits within your budget because you can get the system for about 600 quid. The two vertical only for, uh, force plates you can use with, I mean, with the cables, chuck them into your laptop. You can still collect your force data at a thousand hertz, which is more than adequate for um, vertical ground reaction force data. Now, I will will say that I'm not entirely 100% comfortable or confident with the landing data you can get from them in terms of um, saturating the, the, the signal. I haven't saturated the signal yet, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not as not well. I I haven't really examined properly the. The effect that landing heavily has on um, the quality of the data during the landing phase. So that's something I need to I want to have a look at before I suggest that they're going to be great for looking at depth jumps and stuff like that. Yeah, but they're okay. definitely good for do for the propulsion forces. You're 
you're going to generate even the big lads like Lloyd and, and some of the other fellas, you know, really good jumpers, that you can get some pretty decent forces out of them and, and they can cope with them pretty admirably. Uh, and then, of course, it comes down to processing them. Um, of course, you've got stuff in the middle. You've got the Pasco plates, obviously, at one end, the big the in-ground Kisslers and AMTIs at the other end. You know, where you go next is entirely up to you. I, I know you've got the Quattro Jump by Kistler. I know you've got the AMTI AccuPower, which is a big old beast of a, of a unit. And then you've got the two uh, dual plate systems that have come out recently the, in, in the Force Dex and the Z-Flow. Uh, I haven't seen the Force Dex up close and personal, but I have seen the Z-Flow, and it looks absolutely fabulous. Um, are, they the, are they the German ones? The, German? the actual no. plate, yeah, the plates themselves are German, but they're by there, yeah, but the company's based in the States. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I couldn't tell you about a four-six one. I, obviously, I know the, uh, I certainly know one of the guys who's behind creating them. Um, so I've got absolutely no issue with that, but I, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't like to comment on the plate because I haven't actually had a chance to play with it. I like the AccuPower. Uh, I've played around with that a lot. Again, you can you can record. If you use AccuPower's default software, the original would, would only let you sample to something like 400 hertz, which is a bit ropey. There's a new upgrade that allows you to, I think it's 1200 hertz. But um, if you don't, you want to use, or you're not that bothered about the AccuPower software, you can actually use AMTI's default software, and it'll know it lets you record at uh, 1000 hertz quite easily as well. And you can record for a long period of time as well, which is quite cool. So. Now we've kind of discussed uh, data collection. To- that was a really God. boring answer, wasn't it? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. Here's some numbers because force plates are cool. I'm cool <laughs> and numbers are cool. <laughs> not at all, mate. So we've gone through the kind of data collection tools. Yes. Then we're moving on to the data analysis tools. You just want to oh, give us a... Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you thought that last answer was fun. This is going to be even more fun. <laughs> Get the towel ready for the, for the dribble. Oh, did, that, um, did have a little dribble? That was my tea, though. <laughs> Chuck and teal down myself like a soft southerner. <laughs> so do you just want to take, take us through the kind of um, the spectrum of data analysis tools and the kind of positives and negatives? Absolutely. Uh, if, if that's applicable. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, in terms of positives and, and negatives, I think we're only really constrained by um, how competent we are with that particular bit of software. So I would say, and again, I, I might get shot down in flames for this, but I think the three main types of software that we can use, or the three types of package that we can use for these are Excel is probably the 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 the, the main one. Um, you've then got LabVIEW, which I'm sort of scratching the surface on a little tinsy bit. Although when I compare it to people who know what I'm doing, I, I just embarrass myself. Um, and then you've got MATLAB. MATLAB is just well, it's gobbledygook. I know there's people that look at it and think, "Oh, this is amazing." I'll just look at it and want to shoot myself. Um, <laughs> I've heard of a few people that have started using R to. Um, write their code to process their data. and It's getting a bit cool, is that, isn't it? Absolutely. I'm, it's getting I'm, a bit cool. I've never been one of the cool kids, so I'll probably pick yeah. up on it in about 10 years. <laughs> I'll be ter- I'll be like the guy turning up in pale blue state press in 1990. But anyway, um, that's another story. Uh, and I was bullied mercilessly ever since, and that's what made me such an aggressive individual. Um, uh, and, and also, I think there's a few people that started playing around with um, Python as well. Although, again... Um, the R and the Python, for me, uh, and again, I, I might be a little bit more completely wrong about this. That seems to fall in with the whole uh, MATLAB sort of approach to stuff, which is which is cool if you know what you're doing, you can get it out of it. But I, I don't. But the, the bottom line is, I think that for me, if you start off in Excel or whatever, whatever you do, if you start off in Excel to, to with your column of ground reaction or your two columns of vertical ground reaction force data, Excel will enable you to take enables you to work through that force data step by step to actually practically apply Newton's laws to it. So, for example, if you have your first column of vertical ground reaction force data, the first thing you want to probably do is identify the first one second of quiet standing, i.e. when a person's been stood still, you can then calculate an average using the Excel average function, and hopefully I'm not teaching people to suck eggs here. That's, that's basically weight. That's your subject's weight. And it's, I, for my money, it's, it's better to do it that way than rely on the scale um, mass that you'll get and then multiply that by 9.81 because... Um, obviously, the um, sensors in the force plate can are, are subject to, to temperature changes and stuff like that. You know, even even subtly, and and obviously scales aren't always as accurate as perhaps we'd like them to be. So I would always say stick with the same system when you're you're talking about measures of weight and mass. Once you have that measure of weight, you can divide that by nine point eight one or the acceleration of gravity to get that the individual mass. And they're the two key uh, variables that you're going to, or the two key numbers that you're going to need to go for the next couple of stages. Because then what you can do is in a um, 
So you're basically going from left to right. In the next column, you can create what we might call a net force data uh, column of data. And you're basically just going to take your original force data and subtract the, the individual's body weight. I say body weight, obviously, if they're jumping with an additional barbell, let them become system weight. But again, it don't, don't really matter what you call it, as long as you, you know it's weight. Um, then you can go into a third column, or you can go into the next column, divide that new force data you've got that's had the, the weight removed from it, and you can divide that by the individual's body mass. Uh, and that's basically just rearranging Newton's second law of motion, and that gives you their acceleration. So all of a sudden, you've gone from a kinetic measure, a measure from the you know, of the cause of that motion, to an actual kinematic measure. Of acceleration which is basically describing that motion so that for me is a really cool bit because all of a sudden we've gone from that transition of having a measure of how hard somebody's pushed or pulled something and now we've got a measure of well how quickly it's moving or the, the rate of that change of movement which for me is pretty awesome this is where it can get a little bit tricky once we've got our acceleration data we can then move to the next column to the right and we can numerically integrate our acceleration data to get velocity um, quite often this is when people stop because as soon as they've got their velocity data they then multiply that by force to get a column of power data they identify the peak value and they say there you go that's a good one and off they go which makes me cry inside because they've done all that work, hard work in collecting that data and all they've done is picked up one bloody number and my one criticism of using that approach and again feel free to shoot me down in flames Twitter but if all you're interested in is peak power, you're missing so many tricks there because peak power at the obtained from force data that's sampled at a thousand hertz represents the work you've performed over one millisecond. What's the bloody point in studying that? Who cares how much work you can perform over one millisecond? Explain to me why that might be meaningful. And again, that's, uh, this is you know my approach, this is my opinion, so, uh, and I know people, plenty of people out there will completely disagree with me, which is absolutely fine. I'll be in Vegas in July at the NSCA conference next year, so you know, come and buy me a cup of coffee and, and tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> and even if I'm wrong, I still get a free cup of coffee out of it, so that's good. <laughs> um, bring a packet of chocolate digestives and I'll, you, know, you can talk to me for even longer. Um, it's me starting to draw now. Yeah, yeah I am. Oh, I'm having a moment, <laughs> moment. yeah. Digested. <laughs> <laughs> oh, chocolate. Um, well, but once we've got, so once we've got our velocity data, that's cool. I mean, to be honest with you, we probably don't need to go much further than that. We don't really need to go much past that velocity column if we don't really want to, because um, even if we're interested in displacement, we can actually use the velocity time graph that we can plot in Excel to actually identify the key points that I. Um, that enable us to identify the, the various phases that we might be interested in. So the unweighting phase at the beginning of the counter movement, the active eccentric phase when we're actively applying a force to retard our downward movement. And then we've got the active propulsion phase when we're actually in the, from the bottom of the squat position uh, or the bottom squat position and we're actively pushing against the ground to launch ourselves off the platform. So we can identify those three key phases. And I know there's so many different variations of, what those, um, of those phases and so many different names that then, oh God. Turn into a who's who of who's wrong and who's right, and that that's not going to help anybody at this stage. But you know, just be wary if you're interested in that area. There are so many different ways of doing it. Um, if anyone's interested, by all means, email and I'll try and give you some papers to sort of have a flick through to try and figure out who's right or wrong or what. Probably more importantly, what approach might suit that particular individual and their athletes. But you know, from that, you can then pick out any of the information you're interested in. So obviously, the, the ultimately, and you'll be amazed at how many people don't actually re report this why don't we just start with jump height? Now, I know jump height is certainly not the be all and end all, and I know jump height can stay the same while the mechanics that underpin that jump height change, but it's not a bad start. You know, how, when you push against the ground, out of, you know, when you lower yourself to the, uh, to the ground and then reverse that motion to launch yourself up into the air, how high can you jump? I think that's a pretty good place to start. Once you've got that, then you can tease into the mechanics a little bit more. How much force did you have to apply? Join that propulsion phase. Mm, interesting. It got bigger, it got less, yeah? Then you can start thinking about, okay, so how long did you apply that force for? 400 milliseconds? You slacker. Right, well, let's work on the speed component. You know, or 200 milliseconds, but you still managed to jump my eye. Oh, yeah, that's pretty impressive. Maybe, you know, we, we can leave that speed element alone for the time being and focus on the strength element. You know, so there's lots of different, I know, I know there's different research groups around that have been looking at some various sort of force velocity type stuff and what have you, which is cool. But for me, I think you might be missing the trick if you're um, skipping over the basics of, hang on, what's actually happening when, when you push against the ground? 
you have to apply an impulse. Impulse is force and time. What's the balance between that force and time component like? If you're taking too long to do something, well, then you need to shorten that time, don't you? So you have to get faster. If you're moving fast enough, but you're not moving hard enough, or you're not pushing hard enough, then what's the solution to that? Get stronger. As long as you can maintain or improve technique while you're getting stronger, brilliant. Everyone's a winner. So, Simple. So, yeah, I, I really do think so. Impulse is net force, so the force less the weight multiplied by time. That is going to dictate, I don't care what anybody says. In fact, you know, let's, let's get physical. Challenge me to a fight. I don't care what you say. Impulse underpins jump height. We've seen studies where they correlate. Don't try bloody correlating stuff. You can't correlate um, impulse with jump height because it just doesn't work because what you have to do is divide that impulse by the person's body weight to get their takeoff velocity. You have to square the takeoff velocity and then divide it by 2A or two times the acceleration of gravity. Of course, the bloody correlation isn't going to be perfect, but I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> if you improve your, your impulse, your takeoff velocity will be faster. If your takeoff velocity is faster, you'll jump higher because you know, you're giving gravity a bit more of a run for its money. So don't rely on all of the correlation stuff, you know, you might see in papers necessarily. Focus on the bloody mechanics of it. How hard are you pushing against the ground? How long is it taking you to produce the force to push against the ground? And how high is that enabling you to, to accelerate away from the ground? There's those three components in. <laughs> Excuse me. So when it, com when it comes to being the, being the practitioner mm. and having this or some kit at your disposal, say yeah. a, um, a Pasco, for instance, because that's what we've been chatting about. Mm. What are the kind of, in a, in a time, in a limited time environment, what are the kind of um, values that the practitioner should be looking at, which is going to give them the most information um, to, to work on the back of? Oh, blimey. You really are. You not only, Sorry, mate. You haven't just nudged the hornet's nest, have you? You've given it a kick in the bollocks. <laughs> um, okay. <sighs> Now, I've, had the, I've been really lucky to go to the last four, four NSCA conferences. Um, however, I haven't come away from any of those without arguing with somebody. <laughs> um, one of those, <laughs> unfortunately, was in the middle of a, was at the end of a talk where we were asked to leave the room. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That was a little bit embarrassing. But anyway, there you go. These things happen. Um, I maintain... <laughs> that I'm right, but at the same time, of course, I would do, wouldn't I? And, of course, this completely um, goes against everything I said about not being too precious about the philosophies that, you, you know, your own sort of philosophies that you create. Um, so what's the best way to frame this answer? I would say, and again, this is a bit of a cop-out, I suppose, but I will I will build from it, so don't, don't panic too much. I would say it always comes down to it depends. Why are you studying vertical jumps in the first place? And, and at the risk of upsetting lots of people, and I hope I don't, and I hope people take it in the spirit it's meant, more often than not, we counter movement or, or any sort of vertical jumping tends to be our first sort of, yes, jumping, let's look at jump power, or let's look at explosive power, or let's look at explosive strength in jumping. Okay, cool. Why? Why are we looking at vertical jumping? Well, because so-and-so did. Brilliant. You know, and it comes down to what your mum used to say. Well, if so-and-so jumped under, you know, jumped off a cliff, would you? <laughs> you know like, like we were saying earlier critical evaluation bloody hell use your common sense okay so they did it that's cool they've got some cool graphs and, and tables and stuff like that so what is it relevant and is it practically appropriate for what you're interested in or the, the question you're trying to answer or the characteristic that you're trying to quantify and keep a record of in your, your athletes and again I can't you know I'm not going to pretend I'm a practitioner because I'm bloody not you know, it's been a long time since I coached anybody. But at the same time, I know that more often than not, people latch onto almost like buzz variables. So we have buzz, you know, buzzwords all the time, don't we? But we certainly, you know, in sport and exercise science and more specifically in strength and conditioning science, we tend to love a buzz variable. Yeah. Yeah. We jump over it like flies around shit. <laughs> and uh, do you know what? And it's... it's, it's probably as bad as that, if not bloody worse, as, as grim a picture as that probably paints. Um, you know, we'd, we'll jump, we'll, somebody will come up with something and we think, wow, that's amazing. And we all seen the leap on it. And I'm as guilty as anybody else. You know, I, I look at it and think, oh my God, that, oh yeah, this is it. Right. And that is it. I go back and rehash some of my old data and start applying various calculations 
And more often than not, I, <laughs> I look back at it and think, well, that's a waste of bloody time, isn't it? <laughs> Um, and I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying this to, to sort of criticise anybody in particular because you know we're all guilty of it. We all do stupid stuff, um, and it's by repeatedly doing stupid stuff that we, you know, eventually, more often than not, we come up with something halfway sensible. So I think the first, the first question you know, you've got to answer is why are you studying jumping? Is it appropriate for what you're interested in? So if your answer is well, because it's correlated with sprint performance, okay. Well, have you got have you got the, the stuff that you need to actually record sprint performance? What you know, you might want to consider studying or recording your athlete's sprint performance, perhaps, because actually the jumping stuff might not be relevant. Do you know what I mean? So first things first, is it appropriate? If it, if it is appropriate, why are you looking at it? Is it because of the relationships between other elements of performance, or is it because you want to look at a particular element of? Um, or a particular aspect of that jump performance. So, for example, are you interested in, you know, the elastic utilization ratio? Or are you looking at the, you know, interested in the reactive strength index? Or are you literally interested in how how long uh, or how much work an athlete performs in a propulsion phase of a counter moving jump? Uh, and how quickly they, you know, perform? Do they perform more work in less time? Or, you know, have any of these particular ratios between things like work and time or force and time have changed? And I think once you can answer that, or once you have a good enough understanding that you can answer, ask yourself those questions and then answer them sensibly, then I think you're probably getting somewhere. Uh, and without sounding like a dick, I think until you can actually take that step back and look at it and think, okay, why am I studying this? Is it appropriate? And if it is appropriate, what's the most appropriate variable? Then you probably want to put your force platform down and step away from it and have a good long hard look in the mirror. Which I know I mean, sounds... A well, yeah, no, no. you know, it sounds a bit silly, but what's the bloody point in studying something if it's not going to give you the, you know, the information you're after? Uh, and at a, at the risk of sounding a little bit dramatic, but um, at the most extreme case, you're wasting your, your athlete's time. You know, and in a lab environment, you know, it's got ethical considerations because why are you putting people through that testing if actually it's not going to yield any use, useful information? You know, the whole idea of research is to further any particular area of interest. So again, don't just do a research project on vertical jumping because you think it would be cool, although, all right, I'm guilty of thinking that's, a pretty, that's about as good a reason as you need to do it. You know, perhaps buy your own force for plate and do that on the weekends on your own time. If, if, if that's the sort of thing you're interested in, yeah, it becomes more of a hobby, but you can't put that sort of stuff on, on, on your particip you know, willing participants or uh, willing to volunteer their time if you haven't got a useful question to answer. But that's, that's the hard thing to do, isn't it? Mm. That's the hard thing to do to step back and Absolutely. think, why am I doing this? For, for anything, whether it's something or testing or something, why am I actually doing this? Absolutely. And of course, as a consequence, I've literally just talked to myself out of what I've done for the last 11 years, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned about that letter from HR. It's definitely on its way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Can we get you to pay $45 a week? <laughs> your services are no longer required. <laughs> we got a monkey well, I, to do your job. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, at the start that you were kind of relatively new to this type of thing, and, and then we obviously chatted about um, uh, Twitter and things like that, and putting and bigging yourself up of the things you've been doing because you think it's no, no, no. Well, I've I've been bigging myself up. No, 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 no. Bigging other people up. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's a talk of bigging other people up. Yes. 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 Check my best friend out. He's awesome. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what we're doing, isn't it? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So where can people see you bigging colleagues up on Twitter? <laughs> yeah. on Twitter. You mean, where can you find me on Twitter uh, posting absolutely nothing original because I'm basically <laughs> just big barring and stealing everybody else's cool stuff. Absolutely. Um, oh, that's that can't, that can't be nice there. <laughs> okay. No, that's, that's fine. That's a very good question. I think I am at DRJ Lake, at Dr. J Lake. That sounds about right. Which is about as poncy as it gets, isn't it, really? You've got the doctor in there somewhere. You worked hard for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, come Monday morning, someone's going to come and take that away from me. <laughs> I think I'll have that. Uh, I think I'll have that uh, fancy, um, fancy certificate. Thank you very much, Mister Lake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to firstly say thank you for uh, giving up your time. No problem and, at all. Um, 
and yeah, just uh, definitely we keep in touch. And it was uh, certainly an entertaining podcast from a from a host's point of view and a uh, hopefully a practitioner's point of view. Hey, so I, I found it entertaining as well. I love listening to myself. <laughs> Um, on a serious note, though, I mean, I've, I've rambled an awful lot and I've probably <laughs> asked more questions than I've answered. But if anybody does want to get in touch, please feel free to get in touch via Twitter because I will talk about this stuff until I'm, well, until the well, the dog's actually run off. He's had enough. Um, <laughs> <I'm done. laughs> the wife's gone out, the kids have had enough, and then now the dog's buggered off as well. Uh, <laughs> and my tea, cup of tea's gone cold. Um, so, yeah, if you want somebody to talk about this or, or talk through this stuff or even if it's, you know, talk – I've helped so many people um, actually help them sort of set up a, a template in, their, in Excel so they can go through whatever they're doing for their dissertations or their own interests. That I'm more than happy to sort of do that stuff. It won't always be perfect, and I'll probably always more often than not answer the question in a far longer, you know, far longer way than, well, I'm fucking doing it again, aren't I? Anyway, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, if you want to get in touch, please do. <laughs> no, that's great, mate. That's great. Well, thanks again for your time. No problem. And uh, keep the good work. Will do. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> <laughs> Speak to you soon, mate. Yes, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 115 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Jason. As I mentioned before, the Pacey Performance Podcast has a new home and it can now be found at strengthofscience.com. And there's also a bunch of other resources on there that I'm, I'm really excited to bring you, uh, including, as I mentioned before, the audio abstract. So check that out and let me know what you think. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, massive thanks to Coach Me Plus and Vild Performance for sponsoring the episode today. And I will speak to you in episode 116.